Hey everyone, welcome to the EcoBite podcast, where we will be diving into topics around the environmental industry. If you'd like more context to our conversation and or a crash course on the topic at hand, please view the EcoBite video recording before getting started. Either way, enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to EcoBite. This is Liv Haney, product manager for EcoBot, and I'm joined by Amy Gutierrez from The Nature Conservancy. Amy, thanks so much for being on with us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. I'm excited to talk about this. All right. I became aware of this tool, um, the Georgia Low Impact Solar Siting Tool or LIST tool, um, when I was working as an environmental consultant with um, a large uh, engineering consulting firm in 2021. So it was right after that um, data update came came through. And uh, I know that I reached out to everyone we're working on some proposals and was like, hey, have you guys heard about this? And no one had. So it was, I felt like I discovered something new, um, but it- Well, thank you out. for spreading the word. <laughs> yeah, of course. I was intrigued by it because it's very similar to a lot of um, wetland studies that I had done previously in terms of some clients didn't want a full delineation or didn't have time for that. And they were just sort of in a due diligence phase. And so they wanted a, a suitability index essentially, or a, a probability index of where is there most likely to be wetlands? Do we think that we could plan around those? Um, can you give us a conservative estimate? And we essentially took all of a bunch of different data layers, layer, put them together, and then established a, a metric for high probability, medium probability, and low probability uh, situations of where there's likely to be wetlands and where permitting would be needed. So this is awesome because it's just another sort of element of that due diligence and planning process that you can say some of this work's already been done for us. So not only do from all the data that I see, are we in a good position to develop here, but also we have this extra tool that's categorizing a lot of things that probably the public doesn't necessarily have access to in terms of proximity to transmission lines or proximity to uh, electrical inputs or outputs, uh, like you mentioned before. So Overall, I'm very glad to have you here and to be able to talk about this tool a little bit more in depth. When this was first started, so with, you said it sort of started out of a, a college graduate school project, right? Correct. Yes. So it started with the NASA Develop program, which is a, it's a national program, but we were doing it through the University of Georgia. So we were working with students at the University of Georgia who were involved in the NASA Develop program. Okay. Awesome. I love using graduate students to help push along research and, and have that easily applicable tool that can be um, used then in industry is, is so beneficial to everyone involved, honestly. I want to get into a little bit of the, uh, the technical details of this for, for my own enjoyment, mostly. <laughs> um, I always really enjoyed geospatial analysis in terms of when I was working in wetlands and, and even now being able to see um, from an EcoBot perspective, like where is EcoBot being used and where are the hotspots? And um, just tracking things geospatially, I think, makes a huge difference for understanding at a, at a common level. So you mentioned some of the like environmental uh, sensitivity areas. What type of layers are you using uh, in that sort of environmental sensitivity analysis? 
Yeah. So it's changed a little bit as the tool has progressed, you know, as we've learned more, as we've gotten feedback from partners. Um, I'm actually in the middle, maybe perhaps to, toward the end of a data revision cycle. I just got the maps yesterday. So this is very, you know, front of mind for me. Um, but the current version that's out there and the new version won't change too much. Um, we've got two sort of regional spatial data sets that we use as our foundation. So um, it is the Southeastern um, Conservation Blueprint, which is a collaborative um, being developed by Fish and Wildlife Service, but it's with, you know, all of the regional fish and wildlife agencies and state agencies um, trying to come together and identify the areas that are most important for conservation. So, you know, trying to identify the, the best broad speaking conservation terms. Um, we also have a similar large landscape level um, data set called the Resilient and Connected Network. That's a nature conservancy data set that is looking at the need for connectivity, for habitat connectivity, but especially the need for connectivity in the face of climate changes. So interpreting the kinds of movement patterns that we are anticipating will be seen through climate change and making sure that the areas that we are prioritizing our protection efforts are in these climate corridors, are in areas that allow for species to move to optimal locations where they need to. So those are two base data sets that we pulled in. One of the benefits of using this regional data set is consistency, um, you know, across agencies to make sure that we're, you know, representing comprehensive priorities. But the other one is a is a, just a really technical um, benefit, and that's the fact that we have fewer data inputs. We have a, you know, a more comprehensive data set that we can use as our foundation rather than using uh, six or seven different data sets to make that foundational level, which is what we started with when we were originally working with NASA Develop. Awesome. I know that's great for processing time and great for loading and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, uh, exactly. And I, I enjoy doing geospatial analysis, but I am by no means an expert. So anything that can simplify the process on my end as we, you know, continue to refine this tool and refine the data that's being provided is, is beneficial, I think, for everyone. Um, yeah. So we have those two foundational data sets. And then what we did was with our partners looked at the outputs of those data sets looked at the challenges we were seeing specific to Georgia, since those were regional data sets, and tried to identify what we felt like needed to be additionally represented. So from that analysis, what we determined that we needed some a little extra uh, data on to be provided to the tool was uh, gopher tortoise. Um, and it's a it was a a range of gopher tortoise data, including population data, including um, habitat suitability data. Um, we also went through a process of trying to consider the way that their habitat suitability isn't necessarily well represented in sandhill habitats. So we also have a little side consideration for sandhill um, habitat, which is specific to gopher tortoise habitat, specific to longleaf pine ecosystem, um, a number of these um, species and, and systems that are, you know, really at the forefront of our impacts here in southern Georgia. Um, so the gopher tortoise was one. Um, the second one was the eastern indigo snake. That's a federally protected species. You see a lot of connection with gopher tortoise because they most commonly use the aprons of gopher tortoise burrows, um, but they, you know, use other, other habitats as well. They are a federally protected species. 
And so we worked with um, the Orient Society, who was doing some habitat modeling at the time, to make sure that we were capturing, you know, the, the best data for potential impacts to the eastern indigo snake, what they were predicting would be suitable habitat in the future. So that was the second data set. And then the third data set was uh, a riverine data set. So trying to identify um, impacts to both river systems and active river areas. So the way you kind of imagine that the rivers will shift or uh, move over time, the floodplain that's that's connected to those river systems, um, things like that. So we incorporated that as well. Um, a number of the, you know, the, the lakes and the reservoirs in Georgia are man-made systems, so they don't always show up in conservation data sets, but it's still, especially on, you know, the banks of rivers and when you're thinking about mussel species and just the incredible biodiversity that we have here in Georgia, we needed to make sure that the, the river systems were well represented. So those were the three data sets we kind of layered on top of it. Awesome. And then from the solar suitability side, then what did those layers look like that built that suitability index? Yes. Um, so that one was a really interesting part of this project because we connected with solar developers who were actively developing in Georgia at the time um, and said, okay, here are all of the various characteristics that we are finding in the research that make a site suitable for solar. How are you prioritizing these? You know, what parameters when you're really doing your internal due diligence, you know, what are the ranges that you were looking for, making sure that we are being respectful of internal processes, but like trying to get an average of like, realistically in Georgia, what they were actually using. Mm -hmm. And it was really helpful. Um, so the kinds of data that are in there, we've got land use, land classifications. So putting solar in places that require less land conversion, less grading, uh, less wetland permitting, things like that. So um, that land use side is something that they would be considering. Um, you know, it's easier to develop in an idle ag field than it is in a pristine longleaf pine forest, which mm -hmm. we see solar in both of those. So um, that's one of the considerations. We've got the um, the technical pieces of the the way the um, the sun sun's energy comes in. So we've got those um, those insulation characteristics, and then slope is also a concern because you want relatively flat land. And then the biggest piece within the physical land characteristics was proximity to transmission, what kind of transmission they needed. Um, that was what was weighted most heavily. Um, and when you look at the, the map for the solar suitability, you see it because it looks like veins and you might mm -hmm. think it's roads or it's rivers, but it's actually transmission lines. That's awesome. That's such a, a big, um, I know a big project that's going on in general in Georgia is just investment into the transmission lines and into the grid overall to handle all of the solar that's coming in. So it feels like all of this development is really happening at the same time and sort of in hopefully symbiosis with each other um, and, and that everyone's communicating is, is always the goal. Uh, yeah, I have some it is, it's definitely tricky because that's one of the gate, um, you know, the gate items that we're seeing that's preventing solar from developing perhaps as rapidly as we would want is that we need the grid to be able to support it. So um, yeah. it's exciting, but also difficult to kind of progress both of these at the same time. Yeah. Is the methodology that you guys have developed, is that 
I guess how, so if you, you worked with SCDNR to, to give them sort of the idea of the methodology, is that a patent? patent and process or is it sort of open to anyone to hear about, learn about, apply? It is open to anyone and everyone who wants to use it because what we want is to get it out there and mm-hmm. see where we can, you know, have the greatest impact. So was happy to give it to South Carolina DNR. Um, I've been in a lot of conversations with Florida, mm-hmm. um, but also some of their Sentinel landscape um, planning units, which are the, um, you know, landscapes around, military installations that have to do with conservation um, priorities and other priorities as well. So, you know, trying to talk with them and say, this was our experience. This is how we approached this. This is what we heard from solar developers. Take what of this applies to you, go forth Mm -hmm. and run with it. um, If we can get it out there. I've talked to fish and wildlife agencies in the Western part of us that are trying to identify something and just get something started. And so this was a good, you know, starting place for them. So. And it's yeah. all of our technical details in terms of the analysis and which data layers we used and all of that. It's available on the tool. Awesome. Yeah, I've looked into a, a lot of the sort of the data sources uh, for each of the little bits and bobbins to make sure that when I was presenting it as part of a proposal, that it was capturing everything that we were concerned about. Um, how easy do you think it'll be to swap things out? So we talked about how this was. Um, very focused on solar and the the biodiversity that's affected by solar. So I know as you're talking about Midwest, wind is a big um, energy source in the Midwest. So how easy can it be to sort of swap this out for wind species or wind projects and the species <laughs> that are affected by that? So you're going to see a lot more of the the birds um, protected. Uh, raptors and and birds that are going through, but then also um, impacts. There's a lot of impacts with wind farms that I I don't think are very well understood in terms of how to construct the wind farm itself and um, how to return things back to uh, previous standards. So can you think of anything or have you guys started to think about how we can switch from solar back to to a different type of, of energy source? Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because at the Nature Conservancy, I feel like from a national perspective, we started with wind and then have sort of adapted our wind uh, methodologies and what we learned from the wind installations to solar. So we haven't necessarily gone the other direction yet. Specific to this tool, since it is a Georgia-focused tool, you know, that has to take into consideration the challenges we're running into with Georgia and Georgia permitting and state species and things like that that are going to be different everywhere. It's really focused on Georgia. Um, Fish and Wildlife Service has expressed interest in being able to use this as sort of a broader, especially the environmental sensitivity layer, a Mm -hmm. broader um, tool for not just solar siting, but also, you know, potential for conservation or increasing partnerships or something like that. So it can be applied in a wider direction than just solar. But I want, I need to mention that specifically because we're not able to take in all of the variables. So we were trying to focus on what would make it available for us to actually process and and get it forward. Um, But I do think, especially with those regional data sets that are so comprehensive in scope, um, Mm -hmm. I feel optimistic that the, you know, the base information can be adapted. And then, like you said, the kinds of conflicts that you see in wind that we don't see in solar in terms of the things that are conflicting in the air, 
you know, mm-hmm. air patterns, migration patterns for bats, for birds, what have you. Those would probably be need to be added, though I will say the um, conflicts with bats in Georgia and solar installations are increasing significantly. And especially with some, you know, pending listing decisions for bat species in Georgia, um, mm-hmm. it's going to, it is an issue for this type of development as well. It is not as impactful during the maintenance of a site and like the actual um, the site as it is running, kind of once once you've done your impacts, you've done your impacts, mm-hmm. yeah. um, by and large, outside of talking about, you know, native species and habitat management and what have you. Um, but you don't have that kind of ongoing conflict that you have with the wind turbines, which, you know, in a way is beneficial for solar. But we need more research here, too, on what kinds of like long-term impacts or population dynamic impacts we're seeing. Um, I'm seeing early studies on both like um, beneficial, consider like surprisingly beneficial ways that solar sites are being used and, you know, ways we can even yeah. perhaps maximize co-benefits. But the, the the research is is definitely one of those. I can't tell you how many times I say we need more research on this, but. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you brought up um, starting sort of discussions around providing BMPs, uh, best management practices, guide, guidance for Georgia. And I know that's one thing, again, just in, in my limited experience with consulting is a big driver of consultants that are able to win work for solar or for wind, mostly for solar though, is how can we maximize the site? So can we replant native species underneath the panels. I know there's some places that use it as grazing habitat for certain mammals. And what types of things would you be looking at sort of for the best management practices guidance for Georgia? Yeah, so that's a really exciting space. You know, the the geospatial tool that we've been developing and continuing to refine and things like that are really focused on that, like proactive as early in the process as, as possible siting decisions. Um, but I think there's a lot of really exciting opportunities in the site design space, um, both to avoid conflict, minimize conflict, but again, to maximize potential co-benefits. Um, I think agrivoltaics, which is the combination of agriculture on um, solar, solar farms or solar installations is really exciting. We're seeing it in Georgia um, most most right now with sheep grazing, uh, sheep grazing and solar can be symbiotic and the sheep can help, you know, decrease the maintenance costs because of the, um, the forage that they are um, controlling. But then also you have that additional revenue stream from, you know, the, the sheep and we can maintain some of these sites in an agricultural way. The, the crop production and connection of, you know, growing crops under solar panels and things is really exciting. I'm not seeing as much um, pickup of that in Georgia, but, you know, never say never. Um, but things like that are really exciting. And I have been working with a, um, a partnership on these voluntary best management practices, um, trying to provide guidance. And the guidance we've been looking at is literally across the whole range of an installation from that site design through to uh, you know, maintenance and end of life considerations and, mm-hmm. you know, reclamation of sites and things like that. And I've learned so much about all the different things that are out there for options for site design, you know, incorporating species corridors in areas where you've already got 
places that you can't produce, uh, that you can't install solar panels, you know, if you've got um, wet areas trying to, pr- to incorporate ways for wildlife to pass, you know, wildlife friendly fencing seems like another doable option within that site design space to, you know, maximize opportunities um, for, for wildlife. The, the native plant, I have a personal passion for native plants. So the native plant discussions and seed banking and trying to um, incorporate local um, ecotypes with the seeds that are being put on site. Um, that's something that I personally get really excited about. Um, it feels like early days, you know, and there's a lot of conversations still of exactly which plant species will work best and, you know, which heights and what kind of benefit they really provide, you know, what kind mm-hmm. of pollinator impacts that they are having if we can incorporate pollinator habitat. Um, so I think there's a lot of opportunity in that space. And I, I, some of the solar consultants in this area and the solar developers are doing some really exciting things. Yeah, that sounds great. I, I am a nerd about the native plants as well. So it's great to hear that that, that development is happening. One issue that we face as from EcoBuds perspective and or one issue I guess that we're trying to solve is the lack of a connection between consultants and the survey and the surveys and data that they collect to submitting that for a permit and then what happens with that data. Basically it ends once the permit is issued. Cool, we know where we can impact, where we can't, but then that that survey can sometimes just go to waste. So especially when it comes to endangered species, I know this is a a big deal. No one really wants to publicly put where, specifically where endangered species are being found. It's not really something that anyone wants to be publicly available, but also it would be very impactful, I think, to this tool to have consultants be able to provide you a a set of, hey, I found this massive area full of gopher tortoises and this is where they're at and this is the range that they're um, sort of encapsulating. What do you think is the likelihood or, or what do you think is a good way to be able to start to get some of that data from people that are already going out in the field to do it rather than having to pay for a, a survey of your own? I would just love to be able for everyone to work in harmony and provide this this yeah. information. Since you're already doing it, how about we just yeah. make your data yeah. share? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I love that idea. And I, I, ran, I ran into that, especially with the gopher tortoise portions of this, because we don't, you know, we have an idea of where populations are, but the you know, on the ground surveys that I know are happening every day because I used to be a consultant doing NEPA assessments, like I was living in that world. And I know that mm-hmm. there's a lot of information and knowledge that we're just not connecting the dots with um, because of, you know, limitations at the state natural resource agency, and then also this kind of private disconnect. Um, and the data revision that I mentioned, that's going to be, you know, on coming soon. Um, mm-hmm. We were working more with the state with some of their, state data sets and we're continuing that discussion um, and I think as the state goes into another state wildlife action plan which they're in the process of revising I think there will be space for discussions like that there too um, and I'm excited about you know just being able to be 
a, uh, a data nerd and talk to them about ways that we can improve some of the habitat mapping side of things. Um, so I would love it if we saw a connection there. And I think probably through the state agencies would be the place that it would be more, most likely um, mm-hmm. just because of the, the visibility of their, their, you know, their partner data sets. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Going into that too with state agencies, what do you think, have you gotten a sense of if future regulation in Georgia can be or will be set based off of a tool like this? So if if part of a permit issuance for the state of Georgia is we can give you a permit, but we will not grant a permit to any plan that is in uh, avoidance recommended area according to this list tool. Do you see any future of the list tool being able to be really used as a basis for regulation, I guess? I think the kind of underlying assumptions could be used. I wouldn't necessarily want the data because this is not ground truth data. You know, yep. we do have to put a disclaimer in there that you might see different things on the ground. This is what we're mm-hmm. trying to do at that, like, you know, phase one early due diligence. Um, and so I would hate for, you know, regulatory decisions to be made based of based off of that. But I, I could see an opportunity for there being a tiered system of like requiring additional effort in mm-hmm. those areas, which are, you know, more, they're, they're closer to the avoidance recommended. What I would love to see is the green areas go through a process faster. Yeah. So not necessarily add anything on, on the avoidance recommended side, but move the green that is already identified as likely low impact along yeah. a little bit faster. That would be um, that would be my dream. I will admit tools like this, we're trying to avoid getting to that need for regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're seeing that pattern kind of happen across across the country of needing to regulate the kinds of, you know, land impacts that these types of facilities are having. Um, but I would love it if we can really, you know, dig into the tool that's while it's still voluntary. So we don't have to add that extra, that extra layer on top. It's a carrot rather than a stick here that that we're trying to send through the system. I think that's a better approach. (laughs) I, I am, I am the uh, pessimist and, and just always thinking no one's going to do it unless they have to. But I mean, it behooves them, honestly, because any development that you have, there's a reason why it's marked as as less preferred because you're going to run into potentially environmental hurdles that is going to require more permitting and it's going to require more review and more due diligence and just a longer time period. And as a consultant, I'm sure you experienced this as well. No client wanted the answer to be it's going to take longer than you would like it to. It's going to cost more money then and, and it's not it's not going to be beneficial to anyone. So I, I think that's a great sort of hope to, to be able to look forward to. Is this tool or this, I should say, this layer, um, the raster layer available easily for anyone to just add to like on ArcGIS Online, just to add that to their maps to say, look at my project boundary um, project site overlaid with this layer so we can really see yes it falls entirely within this green area so we are good to go um i will say that i'm still working on that there is a web service layer 
Um, mm-hmm. And the, the first step that we took is actually incorporated in corp, incorporating it into the Fish and Wildlife um, IPAC system, which is where a okay. lot of consultants are already, you know, considering mm-hmm. their species lists and and polygons and things. They can um, they can pull it in that way. Um, mm-hmm. The other way right now outside of the the web service is, you know, I'm t- anytime I talk to a consultant, I offer to send them the data packages. So oh, that's, that's awesome. a pretty manual process you know, <laughs> yeah. right now. So that's not the ideal, but, um, and you have an issue with versioning when you are, you know, providing independent downloads. So that's the one kind of limitation that we see on that space. So I, I am moving toward the the web services option, especially yeah. as everything within GIS um, is transitioning to ArcGIS Pro and, you know, some, some better sharing of capabilities and um, ArcGIS online capabilities and things like that. So I do think that's the direction it needs to go. And I will say I'm working on it. Yeah, awesome. I think that's definitely a getting it into something like Esri's Living Atlas would be the the easiest way for someone to just add it. I do know I did this, <laughs> but you can you can get the web service link from inside the the it's yes. not as secretive apparently as as I thought it was. <laughs> you could just send Amy an email and she'll send it to you. But yeah, I, I pulled up like the developer options and pulled the web service link from there and then hooked that in as a as a server and so that we were able to have it be I was trying to move a lot of our clients to um dynamic mapping rather than having me send them a PDF, like just have a login to ATOL and you can see it as we as we go. I think it saved a lot of time and um, reduced confusion because the map would the dynamic map is always updated, whereas your PDFs will be outdated easily. So I am with you and I will be a champion for that ArcGIS online integration. Um, or even just I, I know there's other other people that use like QGIS and, and other systems. So just getting a readily accessible um, web link and honestly for Ecobot too, because that's something that we could, we could look at combining with our data sets so that um, people can see where their points are being taken and if they, um, where wetlands are and if they're in a good spot for solar as well. So. Yeah. That's, I think- that's- is exciting options for the future. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just love, I love to see these kinds of things of seeing like where efforts can go together and be bigger than the sum of just the individual effort. Like it just, mm-hmm. that's what keeps me in the conservation space. Yeah, that's awesome. This has been a great conversation. I've really appreciated it. It's sort of come full circle for me coming in as a consultant and using the tool to now being able to talk about the behind the scenes, how it was developed and how it's being applied. I think the potential for this is really unlimited and the application potential also is unlimited and the methodology potential is unlimited because you can apply it to so many different things. Um, And if, yeah, the word can be spread throughout the country to to be able to take this sort of um, idea of the regional data sets combined with um, the specific solar suitability indices and all of that to create local regional maps. I think that it's going to be nothing but a positive, positive impact from that. Do you have any sort of closing, closing thoughts um, about this tool, about 
your experience with it, about the future of technology itself in, in the, the effort to reduce climate change and increase biodiversity. I think technology has a, has a great role to play in, in seeing if you have any thoughts on that. When I think about the way that we're sort of interacting in this space, I just think about the need for um, partnerships. And then I mm-hmm. think about the need for like advancing and increasing efficiencies. And, you know, mm-hmm. that moving forward while also creating efficiencies is so important, um, you know, in business, in life, whatever. And um, I think that technology is the way forward on on that, you know, the the remote sensing technologies and, you know, drone capabilities and things like that, you know, there's mm-hmm. just so much um, potential for what those advancing technologies can be used for. And so it's really exciting. And I, I hope to see it integrated more fully into, you know, conservation practices as we continue to learn more about the technologies and see what the opportunities are. Um, and going back to the, the the topic of partnerships, I just want to bring it up again because a tool like this, if we were just trying to say solar developers don't do this, it's mm-hmm. not going to work. Like we want to find the common ground. We want to be able to hear from that community that's actually doing the work, what their challenges are and how we can help them and also help them understand why we might be working on this issue to begin with. And I really think there's a lot of times in this conversation about solar, at least here in Georgia, we hear a lot of um, like us versus them, depending mm-hmm. on which side you are. It's like conservation versus uh, development or it's clean energy versus, you know, avoidance of development or something like that. And I really just think that listening to each other and coming together in the middle and then finding a like, technologically feasible solution in the middle is where we need to be to be able to move it forward the quickest, which ultimately is what I think every party can agree on. Yeah, totally agree. That was a great summation of of the whole discussion and, and the future to have. So Amy, thank you very much. I appreciate your time and I hope that we can keep in contact and maybe keep this partnership going. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I love talking maps and talking data anytime I get a chance. So this has been a lot of fun. 